this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey guys, this is John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder Score. If you haven't got your score yet, I'd encourage you to take 13 minutes and complete the questionnaire you'll find at valuebuilder.com. It'll give you your score on the eight key drivers of company value. You're going to learn some different things about what drives the value of your business. You'll be able to see how you performed on these eight unique factors. Go to valuebuilder.com. So you probably heard the odd story of an entrepreneur selling the same business a couple of times. First time he builds the business up or she builds the business up to a successful enterprise, sells it, and then the acquirer goes and messes things up. And uh, the business is in flames and the old owner comes in, swoops in and says, I can fix this, buys it back and then resells it. And that is exactly what you're going to hear from Barry Wood. Barry Wood built a company over a three-year period and ended up selling it for about double the industry standard EBITDA multiple for for companies like his. Over a five-year period, he watched as the acquirer made mistakes in, the, in, in integrating the business and ultimately decided to go into business again and compete with that same company five years later. Uh, built it up, sold it uh, after a decade of running the second company. And so has lots of lessons to share in the area of selling a business and managing one for optimal uh, exits. So here's Barry Wood. Barry Wood, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thanks, John. So now you've been in the business of selling doors for the past 20 or so years. Tell me about what this company did, M&I Door Systems. M&I Door Systems was a business that we bought in 1995. And M&I was focused in a very specific niche market of robust, um, uh, very durable doors, a durable door marketplace where they sold product into uh, refineries, pulp and paper mills, um, railway maintenance facilities, uh, high, high traffic areas. Yeah, kind of big industrial doors. Did you do any residential stuff or was it all commercial? No, no, it was all commercial and industrial. And just while you're saying that, I mean, the biggest doors that we made were uh, doors that were went to uh, uh, Fort McMurray to the Athabasca Tar Sands. And we would actually build the doors where the big Terex and Euclid trucks would uh, go into wash bay facilities to be cleaned out, and our doors are 50 feet by 50 feet, that type of size. So large, large doors. I'm just getting this visual because I've seen how huge those trucks are, and I imagine yeah. the doors that need to open in order to back those trucks into a, a washing bay would be huge. So when you say bought yeah. into this business, um, and, and, and there's a we involved, tell me a little bit about that. Who's the we and and this must have been early in your career. How did you get the money to buy into this business? Well, what actually happened in that one was I had had a predecessor business that I'd started up and ran for about six years. And um, it actually uh, disappeared in a shower of sparks um, for a whole lot of other reasons that I would, won't bore you with in this chat. But one of the people who had invested in that business um, had gone to work for Working Ventures Fund. And uh, at that time, it was one of the big labor-sponsored venture capital funds. And he approached me and said that there is a business that uh, was a great opportunity with an individual who was, you know, at a retirement age, and he wanted to sell his interest in that business. And 
he asked me if I'd like to participate in acquiring that business with them. And um, I looked at it and helped them in some of the due diligence of acquiring that business and uh, was delighted to have that opportunity to, to take part in buying that business. And we bought that business in late 95. And when you say bought it, I mean, were you putting sweat equity at the table or did you actually write a check along with the venture capitalist? Yeah, that one was a bit of an unusual one. I had lost a pile of money in the business I'd previously bought, and uh, they actually gave me a sweat equity interest in that business uh, with an opportunity to actually earn more, uh, a bigger equity stake if certain uh, events transpired, which they ultimately did. What were the what were the triggers for the additional equity? I mean, were they sales goals, profit goals? What were the... It was actually repaying the acquisition financing within a, a set period of time. I think it was a three-year time period that if we're able to repay the the money that we had used to do the acquisition, then I would get a step up uh, in my equity. And uh, what happened was is uh, our largest U.S. competitor came along uh, just after owning the business for about two years and uh, indicated an interest in in buying our product line to fit in with their much larger product offerings in North America. And uh, they effectively gave us an offer we couldn't refuse, um, as it turned out. And so how did you know you couldn't refuse it? I mean, what was the, the basis of, of your assumption that this was a great offer? What, what valuation technique did you use to, to come to that? Well, you know, that's, that's one of the mysteries, isn't it? I mean, we took a look at where we thought that business, what its performance could be over the next three or four years from that point. And we realized that the American company wanted to acquire us um, so much that they'd probably fully priced our business out for the next three or four years. And that even if we hit all of our marks um, over that period of time, um, we probably wouldn't realistically expect to get paid more than they were offering us in 1998 for that business. So it just made a lot of sense to, to sell them at that point. And so talk about that transaction itself. So they obviously came to you. Did they come to you or did they come to the VC firm that uh, had backed you? They actually came to me because we knew each other um, in the industry, and uh, they approached me as the the CEO of that business. You know, having met me at different trade shows uh, and, and you know things of that nature. And things, and people are always curious about how these conversations go. So was it one of those ones that was was kind of a dance, and there was code like we'd like to have a more strategic relationship with you? You know, all oh, these no. euphemisms for acquisitions. No, in your case, it was direct. We want to buy you. It was it was very direct. We got a call from their business development person down in the U.S. and said, "We'd like to meet to talk about buying your business." And uh, that was the start of the conversation. And where did it go from there, Barry? What happened was is that they flew up and met with us, and we had a chat and uh, talked about some general parameters of their interest and tried to understand whether or not we could touch fingers on something. And it pretty quickly emerged that we probably could touch fingers. And then it, it sort of meant that we had to sort of step back and understand what um, the value they proposed to offer for that business, whether it really did sort of meet our expectations on uh, whether we wanted to hold the business and try and fetch more for the business or um, accept, you know, going into a process to sell the business to them. And so how did you decide? Did you did you go through a process where you looked for other bidders or did you fall in, no. in the hands of these guys? No, I mean, we were pretty satisfied and recognizing that the people that I was co-investing with were pretty sophisticated people as well. 
um, at Working Ventures Fund, we had a pretty a pretty good grasp of what would reasonably be expected. So we didn't feel like we needed to contact an agent in this instance to try and help us through the process. And just for um, folks who are listening, so when you say fully valued, basically what I'm hearing you say is, look, if we run this company and we hit the lights out, if we're successful at hitting all of our goals three years from now, we're still not going to be valued at the same price these guys are offering us today. That was what our sentiment was at the time. That's exactly it. So that's what you mean by fully valued. So you, right? You, what was the negotiation like itself? I mean, you you obviously got this huge offer, fully pricing the business. What was the actual it was really, sort of negotiation? It was like? it was really it was really quite quite humorous actually because the uh, the individual who was representing Working Ventures Fund and I met met with each other, and sort of looked at each other and said, "Well, what do we think a reasonable price?" Given where we think their mind is on how much they want our business, where would a reasonable settling point in this be? And we knew it was, you know, it wasn't fitting in more typical uh, EBITDA multiples that would you expect to have at fetch at that time, uh, you know, four times earnings. I mean, that, those types of yardsticks, we were well beyond those. So it became a question of what we think we could make stick on the wall, literally at that point, and uh, without without totally offending them. And uh, we came up with a number that we thought was a very reasonable price, a very fair price to us. We put that number in front of them, and there was a small negotiation, John. It wasn't it wasn't protracted, and when it came to the dollars, um, and uh, they accepted what what our asking price was. So um, I don't need to, a, I don't need to know what the asking price was, but can you share with us what multiple of EBITDA would have been if four times was the industry norm at the time? What were you guys looking at? Well, I'll give you a bit of a, a bit of a feel for it. We we actually sold that business two and a half years later for three times what we paid for it. So uh, it would have been our EBITDA had probably increased from our acquisition about thirty percent. So it probably would have been eight, nine times EBITDA multiple at the time we sold it. Now, we were on a good growth curve, and there were some great things going on internally in terms of uh, generating cost efficiencies internally that uh, we were just in the middle of implementing. So there was a, a nice-looking direction to the business, and, and, and somebody acquiring it you know, probably would be thinking between the the growth that they could generate internally in their business through their distribution channels, plus the the organic growth as well as the the savings that were and improvements being generated internally, they probably were thinking they're looking at six times six times multiple. I would just guess. Um, and being a U.S. public company, that was accretive to the value of the U.S. public company at the time as well. So, uh, I think they were content making that bid at that type of a multiple. So they were, when you say creative, meaning they were on the stock exchange in the U.S. trading at a higher multiple than 6X. Exactly. They were trading on the New York Stock Exchange and they were probably trading at, you know, 10 to 12 at least times uh, earnings. Such an important point. The The notion of being accretive listeners is is when you've got a stock, in the, if you're running a public company and your stock is trading it, as Barry's mentioning, at 20 times earnings and you can buy a company for five times earnings, 
you basically are applying their earnings onto your P&L and getting a bump right away because you're trading at such a, a high premium to what you were buying at. Uh, so it, it makes all kinds of sense for the buyer to buy businesses where they are accretive in nature. So such a good point, Barry. So your story doesn't end there because you could have just ridden off in the sunset. I understand you had a five-year non-compete with M&I, which you That's owned. right. Uh, That's but right. then something kind of happened between you know the end of the uh, the uh, the non compete and then uh, running off in the sunset. A new business came about. Exactly. What well, this this the story of this acquisition would be a case a case study at Harvard or, or Ivy for uh, an acquisition gone wrong. They they allowed our product line to cannibalize their product line because ours inherently was better product, and it just led into a vicious cycle of of head cutting as opposed to really understanding how this business could add value to their business. And over a period of time, it just got worse and worse for them. And uh, rather than look for improvements, they they just kept chopping heads. And Barry, were and, you working in the in the acquired company at the time? No, I wasn't. I only stayed for about six or eight months after the acquisition, which was was what we had agreed and what they wanted. They wanted to turn the page and and take over the management of that business and and draw it into to their management structure in their business. So what ended up happening, John, was is it it just, you know, over a period of three or four years, it just ground down to a point where they decided to consolidate the manufacturing operations that had been in Barrie, Ontario, down to the Atlanta, Georgia area. And all of my employees in Barrie lost their jobs. Um, the regional salespeople, of which we had a number across North America, were still working for the the acquirer. Um, but there was just a lot of heartache because this had been a great little business that had just, you know, disappeared effectively from the landscape. And what happened was is that one of the people that had lost their jobs, I actually hired and brought into another business that I was running at the time. And he came to me one morning and said, I've got a great new idea for creating uh, an important part a new way of creating an important part for our predecessor door system. One thing led to another. We ended up patenting a new approach to uh, retaining this this door in a, in, a, in an opening. And uh, at the same time, they started to shut down the facility in Barrie. And it was almost like stars were aligning. And uh, this was right near the end of my five-year non-compete as well. We ended up uh, getting the these patents put in place, I made some calls to people that had been in the manufacturing operation and were scrambling around looking for work or had found new work but weren't happy. And then I called some of the salespeople that were the key salespeople in the uh, old organization. And uh, we reconstituted the business, um, call it a warm startup if you if you want, John. And we ended up calling it TNR Industrial Doors. And we started the business again. And uh, we put some uh, equity financing from myself, and I, I actually reached out to the same people that had been at Working Ventures Fund, except now they had moved over to Covington Funds. And uh, these people put in some equity to do it again. And uh, we put about a million dollars of, of equity financing in place in 2003 now. And uh, that business uh, is thriving today. Just fast forward today, that business is thriving today. It's owned now by all of the managers that had lost their jobs back in 2001, 2002. And uh, uh, the business is doing extremely well. Sales probably approaching $20 million a year. So talk, so, about, uh, talk about that, that, that moment in 2003 when you decided to 
to get back into the business you left. I mean, what were some of the emotions running through your mind in, in weighing that decision as to whether or not to start TNR? Well, one of the great one of the great frustrations that I had, even though we did well in the sale of that business, was is that I was enjoying myself tremendously in, in being involved in that industry and that business. So I saw it as a great opportunity. Even though I had executive responsibilities in another business, at least it would vicariously get me back in that business again. At the same time, I, I did have some strong feelings about the people that had been displaced and uh, you know, lost their jobs and saw an, a great opportunity to do something together with them again and uh, put the fun back into it, if you will. And uh, um, those were the key drivers for me that, that motivated me. Was there an element, Barry, of, of, of kind of I told you so? Like, I, 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 I know how to run this business. You guys screwed it up so royally, and I'm going to show you right now how this business can be successful. No, not at all. No, no, it was, it was, it was, it, there was no cynicism whatsoever involved in it. It was just a straight outright, here's an opportunity to, to do this again and have some fun together and bring together a bunch of really capable people and, 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 and do this, do this the right way, do this properly because there was still a great market opportunity. And um, just because our, the company that acquired us had, had messed it up, um, it didn't diminish the the opportunity that we all felt about doing something together. And was there a modicum of guilt that here you are, you've sold your business to this company M and I, and or this company M and I, you've sold it, uh, you, you know, you made a lot of money, and then here we are, we're going to go compete. Was there was there any sense of, of a bit a bit a bit of a sense of guilt in in O three? No, not at all. Really, it, it, you know, it had gone to a point where. There had been, you know, sufficient heartache amongst the people that used to work there, and I had fully uh, adhered to all of the terms and conditions of the sale of that business. That that I felt, you know, you know, from a from a poor value standpoint, I felt completely at, at peace with myself about the decision to pull us together and, you know, create an opportunity again. I mean, I, there was a bit of nationalism, I guess, in this too, if you will. Um, we were the, the Canadian, the Canadian side of this transaction and had been, you know, displaced and, and we saw an opportunity to, you know, to do well in a North American marketplace still. Um, yeah. So talk to us about TNR. So you started in 2003, you personally left in, in 2013, although I know the business continues to thrive in, uh, under new management today. Talk to right. us about your decision to leave. Why? Why in 2003? Was there a triggering event of some sort? It was 2013, Excuse John. Me, 2013. No, there wasn't a specific triggering event, but the business had grown. I, I hadn't paid a ton of attention except from a directorial responsibility standpoint in the business. And it was in such capable hands. The, uh, the president and CEO of that business is a woman named Kathy Buckingham. And Kathy's done a fantastic job of running that business. And, uh, it was just in great hands, and I saw another opportunity, which is the business I'm currently CEO of, Ontario Excavac Inc. And I I wanted to exit that exit TNR doors, uh, get liquidity for my investment there, so I could reinvest in Ontario Excavac. And at the same time, it opened up an opportunity for other managers and and employees in that business to take on my equity stake. Um, that I was selling. So it, it, it worked really well that way. So why, why sell to the management team? I mean, did you go pros and cons? Because I'm assuming Covington, was Covington out by this point or were they still 
uh, they left. They left almost at the same time that I did. Okay. We, we both left almost almost identically the same time. And, and from um, they they want they wanted to exit. I mean, they had held that investment for longer than they typically do. Ten years, um, but like. yeah, they held it for about ten years. Well, ordinarily, you'd expect five to seven years, and they saw it was an opportune time for it to change hands. It was stable. It had gone through the great financial crisis in the United States with a few little bumps in the road and. Uh, it was it was just a good time for to turn the page and, and pass this business over to the managers. And and so you did a management bio. Why not take it externally and sell the business externally? You know, it's interesting you say that because I think my hat's off to the people at Covington Funds, uh, Scott Clark and Phil Redden. They and Matt Hall. Those they they probably could have done that and could have fetched more value for that business. Um, but quite honestly, they. They were ready to leave something on the table um, for the sake of, of of the success story for the employees of that business. That doesn't sound honestly. like that doesn't sound like the mercenary venture capitalist uh, that, that that I've met. Why why so benevolent? I mean, are, are they a unique breed? Was there some other reason they wanted to make this? No, I don't think it was benevolence. I th- I think it was they were getting a, a a good price for their investment. They did well. They could have disrupted that business and and put it out, you know, in some type of a, uh, an auction or some type of a sales process. But I really think that they they felt satisfied with the run that had happened and uh, that it, that the best course of action for that business was to sell it to the to the managers. So talk about that a little bit. I mean, for folks who have never done a management buyout, I mean, what is the what is that process like? I'm assuming you bring in some sort of external valuation consultant to come in and say what it's worth. Actually, what we did do was we we discussed it internally, discussed it with our external auditors, and they they provided an assessment of what they thought a reasonable value for the business could be. Uh, the the look that I had at, at it as a selling shareholder because I mean I have a financial background myself as well as an operational background so I sort of looked at the work that the auditors had done at the same time the people at Covington who are used to looking at 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 exits from their various investments in their portfolio looked at it and it was not a difficult process to to come within a finger touching zone of what fair value would be um, it's always difficult to know what fair value is but. Uh, within a reasonable range, it fit within a range of reasonableness on on the value. Got it. I mean, you would. I mean, the industry back in '95 was at four x. You you sold for nine x the first time through. I mean, in the management buyout structure, I'm assuming your your number was somewhere between those two. It was. It was around five x actually. And, yeah. And so you feel that 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 in in retrospect that was a, a fair price given given who was buying it. All the circumstances considered, my answer would be yes. I mean, if I wanted to be completely mercenary about it, we probably could have done very well selling it again back into, you know, a North American marketplace. But it just, it just, I think it would have jaundiced the people in the company that were working there every day, having been through it once and wondering what the heck was going to be happening with them again, that uh, morale and, and uh, uh, dissension could have played factors. I mean, you know, they're all very honorable people, but people are also people. So it was just the best direction to take. And so talk about that management bio. Did, did all of the, the owner, all the employees at, at TNR get a stake in, in the company? Did, was it just the management team? Did they have to leverage themselves and borrow the money? Like how did that structure? 
It started. It started with the management team initially. When we when we actually uh, incorporated the business and and we're starting it up, key members of the management team were given equity stakes, and uh, there was a number of them. And we actually put their shares into a voting trust just to make the the operation of the business more wieldy at the at the board level. And uh, over time. We had events take place, which gave rise to more stock becoming available. Um, you know, we had a director die, and then other people were leaving for various reasons. So the stock started to be available to change hands, and we opened it up to um, the rank and file of the company to to buy uh, into the business. It was their responsibility to come up with the funds to. Uh, to buy it, we didn't loan money to people to buy it. It all had to be externally financed, so that was outside the business. So, you know, someone who who whatever uh, machine shopper in in the company would have to, for example, borrow money against mortgage his or her home, uh, come up with some cash and invest in the business at a five x multiple. Was that the way it worked? That that's exactly the way it worked. Yeah, they would have they would have an opportunity to buy a certain number of shares, and there was a window of opportunity there for them to buy those shares, and they said yay or nay to you know you know all or some or none of the the stock that was uh, allocated to be available to them. And then, so what is the what's the value proposition for them as as employee shareholders? I mean, do, is there some liquidity event on the horizon that they would be able to do better than five X? Is it just a Sense of loyalty I, to the company. What, what? I think they love working there, and I think yeah, I think you can maybe work there without owning the company, right? Yeah, you could absolutely. I think I think they're all looking at it as an opportunity to exit the business over some period of time. It's not something that would be primary in their focus um, right now, but if somebody came along, which you know can happen in this worldwide marketplace for industrial doors, uh, it could very much all of a sudden be in play. Um, throughout, you know, without a deliberate action on their part to decide they wanted to have liquidity. Um, I don't know what their plans might be in terms of going to the market. There's always the option that, um, you know, some of the more significant minority shareholders could say that they wanted to uh, achieve liquidity for their investment and might put the business into play over, you know, at some point in the future. But that's not on the horizon from what I understand talking with them uh, fairly recently. And it sounds like you're the kind of consummate entrepreneur, right? I mean, you've been involved in, in a number of businesses along the way, uh, even one before the 95 business, uh, and now you're into another business. I mean, what was life like for you? Uh, it doesn't sound like you took much of a break at the end of 2013 when you sold out of TNR. Now you're in another business. Did, were, you, were you tempted at all to sort of take a break and smell the roses? Well, you know, it's interesting. What happened to me was is that um, the business that I was running at the time I sold my my interest in uh, TNR Doors, I was the CEO of another business, and I had actually had a falling out with my co-investors. So we were having a bit of teeth gnashing in our in our relationship, um, and I I was I I left that business and was looking around for something new to do because I I had taken my money out of that other business. And I needed to take that money. I wanted to take that money plus money out of TNR and put it into Ontario Excavac, where I am now. So it was just you know a confluence of events that that led to it, and the timing was right for TNR at the same time. So it just it was just a matter of just timing the way the way it all worked out. What have you learned in terms of lessons post sale that you could share with our listeners? 
You've gone through it now three times. Well, I think I think the due diligence process is something that that people have to be ready for. It's it's new for a lot of people. It's uh, open kimono, and it's, what was it's the most hard surprising, for people. What was the most surprising thing, very tactically speaking, about due diligence for you personally the first time through? Well, just just the fact that you know you have to bear it all. You 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 have to reveal the business for all of its. All the warts and blemishes, as well as all the great things, you really have to be very candid and upfront about them. Um, you can't you can't hide things. I mean, it has to be all out in the open. So, what one um, thing could you share with us from the TNR or the M and I due diligence process that you were like, "Oh my God, I don't really want to share this, but I have to." What can you think? Get, be helpful for folks to hear an actual real life silly little example. Well, we had we had some warranty we had some warranty issues with some of our larger doors that you know, could give rise to, to cost implications, um, in the future. And, you know, we had to provide for those, we were providing for those costs and we felt that the amount of the provisions we're making for warranting the performance of those doors was certainly adequate, but was an area where, you know, the acquirer was really, you know, looking at, you know, in a fair bit of depth. So there these, call them these, uh, judgmental areas, in, in accounting for future costs is 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 always something that can end up being something that can be debated. It's the subjective um, subjectivity of so on your kind of uh, adjusted or normalized EBITDA that you presented, you had a, you had provided for which is accounting lingo for you'd made a an entry on the P and L for the possibility that some of these doors would come back for warranty. Uh, is that correct? Exactly. That's exactly what it was. Got it. And so how much you provided for was a, an area for debate. Uh, you might argue that, hey, our doors are great. They never come back. The buyer might be like, hey, these doors are guaranteed. We need to have something. That's what happened. But but as well, in the in the share purchase agreement, it was a share purchase as opposed to an asset purchase. When we put the share purchase agreement together, the, the acquirer made sure that he'd covered that off with reps and warrants that, that form part of the share purchase agreement. And that would be another point to share with your listeners that when you sign a share purchase agreement, there are representations and warranties that you provide about the, the veracity of the financial information that you've fully disclosed, that uh, you have you know disclosed any contingent liabilities, things of that nature. And uh, don't be surprised that these are areas where an acquirer with proper legal counsel, will you know seek some type of protection, um, you know post acquisition. So in your case, Barry, to be clear, uh, you had to guarantee that they would not have a, uh, a, a, a many doors come back for fixing, and in the event that they did have to fix those doors that were guaranteed, that you would cover them for that. If you will, that's right. Am I making that that's right. in simple terms? Oh, that is in simple terms what it was. There is a minimum amount. There is there is there is a a cushion amount that if if the amount of any adjusted errors in the accounting for these types of costs you know broached that minimum, then we would have to pay the cost right back to dollar one in our case. So that would be for a, a tipping that basket. That would be a tipping basket uh, sort of. Uh, Exactly. Point. Exactly. So, it would it would basically d- diminish the the net proceeds uh, on sale. We actually had a one year escrow um, for about a million dollars that 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 was there to cover the representations and warranties. And uh, once the year had gone by, the escrow was released, and um, uh, there were representations and warranties that survived that. But uh, ultimately, there were there were you know they, they made a few. 
small, smallish claims against the escrow, but there was nothing really material. And let me talk to you, it, listeners, about this because Barry's bringing up such an important point. I want to make sure you hear it. A tipping basket. Uh, technique or, or or wording in a legal agreement says that, look, we expect there'll be a little bit of uh, warranty work that we'll do. It's just normally the course of business. And so let's all agree that up to, say, whatever, $200,000 of warranty work is covered. But if we exceed that amount and, and we have a, a million dollars of warranty work that we have to do, you're not only going to cover us for the seven hundred and fifty grand, the difference between how much we sort of provisioned for and how much we expected, but we're going to go all the way back to dollars zero. And it's as if you tip over a basket of apples. In other words, you, in, you, have, you, you basically compensate them for the entire amount, not just the amount that exceeds the, that which was provisioned for. It's a concept called tipping basket, often used. I'm so glad you brought it up, Barry, because uh, it's one of those uh, silly little lingo things that some folks maybe uh, it would have been the first time hearing it. For people that are selling their business for the first time, John, um, going through that process and understanding in a shared purchase, the types of protections that a, a purchaser is going to be looking for can be probably startling for them. But if they, it's important that they have, have good legal counsel to negotiate these so that they're uh, as minimally punitive as possible. Um, in, in how they might evolve. We've, yeah, um, we've talked about that before on this show, Barry, about the importance of having a deal lawyer as opposed to the same lawyer who probably incorporated your company and dealt with your right. you know, HR things. Like There's a, a specific discipline, corporate financially uh, minded um, legal professionals that you need to uh, to represent you in these deals because as very you much say, so there's, there's lots of deals. So um, Barry, just give us a, a quick sense of, of what you're doing now. So you've got a new business Um uh, how do people reach you? Uh, can people reach you? And if so, how? Sure, sure. I'm at Ontario Excavac, and uh, we are probably the largest hydro excavator in the greater Toronto area, John. Um, Which means nothing to me. <laughs> I, you know, and I, I, I hesitated for a minute because I was wondering where you're going to say, what the heck is that? What we do is, is we have large trucks that... Uh, they're like septic trucks, and they have a boom on them that um, extends, uh, you know, onto the uh, the boulevard, and and we have a vacuum tube that basically, um, with high pressure water applied to the soil, um, is a soft way of of digging up utilities infrastructure. So buried utilities in tight urban quarters where there's a risk if you use mechanical digging, for example, a backhoe digging into the soil and hitting a fiber optic cable or hitting a gas line. Um, there's so many things that aren't marked underground uh, or not both not marked and not marked accurately that it's impossible to dig um, in urban areas now without running a, a real risk of, of hitting something. And um, I saw that as a tremendous opportunity and uh, we're in the midst of growing our business now and, and diversifying it into infrastructure services, uh, servicing particularly the gas and water marketplaces right now um, where there's aging infrastructure and a need for renewal and um, our hydro excavation skills are, are going to be complementing our other abilities that we're building right now to actually do work on the uh, the aging infrastructure. So it's a very interesting segment to be in. Sounds like you're for setting us. yourself up for, for another successful exit. And again, where do people reach you? People can reach me either by emailing me at bwood at excavac.ca. That's E-X-C-A-V-A-C dot C-A. Or they can always phone me at 416 749-0005. Barry Wood, thanks for joining us. 
You're welcome, John. Great to talk to you. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.